3: Good evening and thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM. I am your host, Abby Newton. Today is my last show for the school year, as I will be spending this summer in Denver, Colorado, but exposure will continue with our new host, Stephen Rich. I will introduce you to him later this evening. Now, in lieu of my last show, I thought it was only fitting to do a best of, where I showcase our best stories, interviews, and features of the semester. Tonight, we will have a year in review. We will talk about comic books, gender roles, Michigan tourism, breweries, and Batman. Again, I am Abby Newton, and this is Impact 89 FM. You are listening to Exposure. Following the trend of microbrewing, Michigan-made microdistilleries are gaining momentum as consumers seek more local products. Impact reporter and future Exposure director Stephen Rich spoke with Matt Jason and Jeremy Sprague, owners of the Lansing-based distillery startup known as Sleepwalker, and MSU artisan distilling professor Dr. Chris Berglund. He discusses their work and experiences in this unique and growing industry.
2: The start of my story brought me to a neighborhood in Okemos. I was there for an informational session for a brewery and distillery startup. I parked my car and walked towards a two-story brick building. I was surprised to see a couple kids by the door, but they took my jacket, made me leave my shoes, and directed me upstairs. The small room was packed with people. There was a big sofa along the back wall, food and drinks on a long card table, and Cornelius kegs cluttered in a corner with printed signs above each one. Heck yes, Heffenweisen, Kinky Brown, King Jeremy Imperial Stout. It was Sleepwalker Brewery and Distillery.
4: The Japanese translation for a sleepwalker is someone who, the literal translation, it's four characters or so. It's um, dream, play, person. And so we love that. I mean, a person who's, you know, dreaming and playing. And so that became became our slogan. So dream, play, is sleepwalker.
2: That was Matt Jason, one of the co-founders of the business. Matt and his business partner Jeremy Sprague had been homebrewing for years before branching out into micro distilling and developing what has become Sleepwalker.
5: So I've been brewing pretty hardcore at home for about five a little over five years now. Um and Matt has been brewing for I think over twenty-three years at home, twenty-four years.
4: Um it'll be it'll be twenty next year.
5: Oh, okay. Seventy-five years or something <laughs> like that. So um, about five years ago, Matt, uh, Matt and I have been friends for a really long time. Our children went to school together, preschool, and about five years ago, Matt uh, had me come meet him for drinks to talk about micro-distilling.
2: Now micro-distilling centers around developing unique and high-quality liquors in small quantities. While micro-brewing is quite popular in the state, Matt and Jason are one of a few micro-distillery businesses in Michigan.
4: With spirits, there are some economies of scale that are you have to take into consideration. I mean, you can make really good whiskey in a huge scale, and with beer, we don't tend to see that as much. So there, there isn't as huge, as big of an impetus. I don't think to do smaller um, company or um, sm- um, smaller outputs of. Of whiskey but but you can make a really unique distinctive product that the big companies won't make so for with
2: a focus on quality and local products they've begun to cement themselves in the mid-michigan community in the past they partnered with the Allen Neighborhood Center to serve beer at fundraisers
4: um, and obviously as home brewers you know we can't charge anything for it so we're just bringing serving small samples and you know we so we can kind of gave this cool spin to their event and they gave us some exposure and we are currently now working on leasing a space from them to produce beer this summer and to, to serve, um, to fill growlers to go. They've also partnered
2: with Craft & Mason Coffee Roasters, and Midtown Brewing Company actually did a collaboration brew with Sleepwalker.
4: So, you know, there are people who want to do some fun, unique things, and that's what we're all about.
2: But micro distillery work is challenging and expensive. It's difficult to take those first steps in the industry, but Michigan State University may have the answer. The MSU Artisan Distilling Program has been working to develop and educate individuals pursuing distilling.
6: So like 17 years ago, the law changed to make it easier to do uh, small-scale distilling. And as a chemical engineer, also with a lot of training in food science, uh, I thought, you know, that might be a good time for MSU to see if they want to get involved in this. And uh, so we had some meetings and stuff and uh, and, and with the industry and everything. And the general... uh, um, the the you know everybody agreed that'd it be a good thing for MSU to have a program to support this industry.
2: And Dr. Chris Berglund is the professor who founded the educational distilling program and its commercial partner, Red Cedar Distilling. And years later, the distilling program remains a unique resource here at MSU.
6: This is the only distilling program in the United States. It's that it. this is it. <laughs> and uh, uh, and so uh, so we have a, a really. Uh, good position to train people people come from all over the United States and Canada and even Mexico to take workshops we have and, and so uh, we 're not just the only one in the u s we 're kind of the North American uh, center for this sort of thing and, and that's're really th- that 's really good because I think that you always even if there's only one you want to be the best right so <laughs> I
2: mean, Berglund said that the focus the remains on giving students tools to learn about the industry.
6: Um, Everybody that works here right now is an MSU student, and one, either a graduate student or undergraduate, and even people tending bar, you know, at, yeah. uh, in the tasting room, are MSU, uh, are MSU students. Um, and so, uh, so we, we really try to keep the, uh, the MSU stuff as a really uh, kind of in the front.
2: From a cohesive relationship with the big name companies to the growth of the spear industry as a whole, Berglin told me that the future of craft distilling was looking bright.
6: Whiskey alone is growing between, you know, 4 and 8% per year. And so it's really a big growth market. And uh, so there's plenty of room for a lot of people, and I think it's just people are, are, are liking, they like the sort of the bi-local spirits, wine, beer. The, the local stuff is really popular, uh, and then the big brand stuff still popular too.
2: And community members like Alfonso Salas look forward to seeing how this growth in the distilling market can bring growth to the community.
6: Well, I'm excited first and foremost is that uh, th- this company, our, our sleepwalker, is, is being located here in Lansing. I think
2: it's important that if you, if you live in the community and you believe
7: in Lansing, you believe in the community, you see that it's growth, then why not invest in it?
2: And so I took a seat at the bar in the Red Cedar Tasting Room. And I ordered the bartender's favorite, because if there's one place where you trust their judgment, it's at the distillery. Cheers. For Impact News, I'm Stephen Rich.
3: Welcome back to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. I am Abby Newton. Now today in the show, we showcase the best of the spring semester. In 20 minutes, reporter Quinn Hoffman looks at comic books as an art form. But first, let's talk about Michigan tourism. Two months ago, I chatted with two tourism experts from Michigan State, Dan McColl and Sarah Nichols. McColl is an assistant professor in the Department of Community Sustainability, and Nichols is a full professor in that department. So Michigan, you predict, is poised for a great tourism season this coming summer. But how do you d- dissect that, and how do you know how the tourism season will be?
7: I'm sure. Well, we look at a number of different factors when trying to figure out what's going to happen in the, right. in the coming year. It starts with a very thorough examination of the previous year, which um, Sarah leads that part and does a, a great job with that. Um, we also look at what's going on with economic indicators that are relevant to, to tourism activity. We look at um, tourism trends that are going on nationally, internationally. We look at tourism promotion spending that's happening in the state. Um, we look at um, any kind of wild cards that are going on, anything sort of interesting um, that might be, be occurring this year. The weather is something that uh, came up. How is this? We had a lot of conversation about how the weather this winter might affect the year's uh, tourism forecast. <laughs> and then we, um, we bring together a panel of tourism experts, and we discuss a lot of these things, and they bring uh, a lot of information, and we, from there, um, create our forecast.
3: And Sarah, how was last year in terms of Michigan tourism?
8: Last year was a good year. Um, we've seen, obviously back in 08, 09, we had uh, the entire economy was mm-hmm. suffering um, and tourism was no different. Um, after that, those bad years, we had a couple of extremely good years with sort of double-digit increases in factors, mostly because they had fallen so much the previous years. Um, so what we saw in 2013 was really the, the third year of, steadier but what we hope will be sustained growth Mm. Um, so we saw about a two percent increase in hotel occupancy um, about a four percent increase in traffic and that's traffic across the state so that includes residents and commuters but also visitors traveling throughout the state Mm. Um, so again smaller increases than we had seen in in 11 and 12 but probably healthier in that they're more sustainable in the long term, and that's what we obviously like to see.
3: Mm-hmm. And in terms
8: of Michigan, do you consider this a big tourism destination? I, it is, it's about the 10th largest mm-hmm. destination as far as the states for domestic travel, um, but it's definitely an emerging destination um, as far as people outside of the Midwest region finally becoming aware of Michigan as a state and the fact that there is more to Michigan than just Detroit, Mm -hmm. perhaps some of the negative images that people have developed of Detroit. Um, And not only becoming aware of Michigan, but actually jumping in their cars or jumping on on planes and coming here to visit. Um, So we're seeing increasing numbers of -of out-of-state visitors, many of whom are first-time visitors. And obviously, if we provide them with a fantastic experience, They'll go home happy, they'll think about coming back and they'll tell their friends and relatives from those other states to come visit too. And uh, one of the contributing factors just from you know a
3: student end is pure Michigan, I think, is that you know promotional aspect. So how has that contributed to this increase of tourism?
7: Well, so the pure Michigan campaign is is um, has been an award-winning campaign mm-hmm. that I think has done a great job. You know Sarah just talked about the number of the increase in out-of state visitors. Um, The Pure Michigan campaign, I think, is largely responsible for that because it's introduced the state to a lot of people in a different way. I think it's changed the image um, of the state in people's eyes. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, the 10 years previous to the Pure Michigan campaign, especially the few years leading up to it or the early years uh, of the campaign before it went nationally... What did people know about Michigan? Um, they knew what they heard on the news. Um, and the news about Michigan was not always good. You know, It was um, De- troubles in Detroit, uh, the Kwame Kilpatrick scandal. It was the auto industry um, having difficulties. It was this image of Rust Belt and you know, cities like Pontiac and Flint as well as Detroit. Um, and nobody was really hearing about, um, some of the, the great assets that the state has, um, and some of the beautiful places. So along comes the Pure Michigan campaign and I think caught people's attention because they were a bit surprised. Mm -hmm. They're like, wait, Michigan? Um, and the the campaign was just beautiful um, and very well uh, created, and that the content of it was excellent in the visual uh, images, um, and it, I think it got people's attention, and, and it got the attention of the media too. So we started, and part of the campaign is not just the national television advertising, but the, the Travel Michigan, the state's pure uh, tourism um, office, they. Uh, we started seeing a lot more publicity for the state. Part of it generated by them by inviting people here to see it. And part of it just, um, you know, Michigan as a tourism destination, I think was sort of newsworthy. Mm -hmm. And so we started seeing Michigan destinations pop up on um, all kinds of magazines, lists of, of places to visit. It's
3: funny, when I drive in my car, I have a notepad. Where, so if, if I see a Pure Michigan billboard, I can write down the destination really quick just to kind of put in my travel bucket later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, in addition to the weather, you kind of touched on that a little bit, but what are your predictions and how that will contribute to tourism this year, maybe even this season?
7: Well, it's tough. We, we had a, a lot of conversation about mm-hmm. this. I mean, one, one question is how much, um, how did the weather during January and February affect January and February mm-hmm. uh, tourism activity? On the one hand, about twenty-five percent of of tourism activity is about uh, is business related, and so that probably wasn't affected by the weather. Um, you know, the ski resorts, um, some of them uh, did quite well, and their bookings were up. But they seem to have lost something with day visitors. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, they might make some of that up with a longer ski season. Um, the uh, Uh, Snowmobiles, um, a lot of people snowmobiled this winter, yet they didn't necessarily go to the destinations that that typically attract snowmobiles because there were more areas where people could go. Mm -hmm. So certain destinations actually saw a bit of a drawback, but overall for the state, You know, we think activity was still pretty high. Mm -hmm. Another question we have is whether, uh, what will the summer weather be? We know that um, some of the studies Sarah and another of our colleagues have done in the past shows that when the weather's cooler or rainy during the summer, there's less tourism activity. Um, And and the thought is that um, with longer ice uh, or ice on the Great Lakes for a longer period of time, it'll take longer for them to warm up. Um, and that will affect the temperatures of the water, but can also affect the climate uh, around the state.
3: Mm-hmm. And Sarah, when we're looking at winter versus summer, what is the proportion of tourism activity in those two seasons?
8: Um, about 50, 40, 50 percent really? of travel is in our summer months, okay. so June, July, August, mm-hmm. September. Um, obviously, we're not a major winter tourism destination in comparison to the states out west the colorado and, and mm-hmm. utah sites um so the proportion is lower in the winter but for those ski areas and obviously the, especially the ones that don't have year-round facilities that don't have golf don't have spas don't have conference centers winter for them is mm-hmm. is their only season um so so critical mm-hmm. and
7: then and in fall year? is big as well oh that's um, true yeah.
3: I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's growing.
7: I mean, yeah, people touring the wineries Mm -hmm. and seeing the colors.
3: And speaking of that, um, how has you know this kind of new fascination with the craft beers, with the wineries, contributed to Michigan tourism, and even enhanced restaurant diversity in that homegrown aspect?
7: yeah I think we have a lot of factors coming together, and Sarah can speak to this as well. Um, we both have an interest in what we call culinary tourism sure. but I think it matches the image that uh, the pure Michigan campaign has tried to establish uh, at a time when people are interested in and not only um, things like craft brews and wines and uh, local foods, and we have the whole local food movement. But also there's a trend in, in travel to go from place to place. And so the idea of like touring wineries or touring breweries mm. around a region is is um, up right now compared to just going to one destination and, and, and staying there. So um, I think the timing with sort of trends that are going on in, in society. And you know, when you're traveling, you want to get a piece of the local culture. Um, and what better way to do that than, than sampling some of the local foods and drinks. Mm-hmm.
8: And just to follow up on that, um, Michigan is actually the second most agriculturally diverse state in the country after California. So as far as the diversity of locally grown foods, um, and obviously mostly summer and autumn mm-hmm. produce that we have, we're second only to wow. one as far as the variety, which obviously gives us a lot of advantage and gives our chefs a lot of good things to mm-hmm. work with. So.
3: Mm-hmm. And is it fun for you to, I mean, Michigan's, like you just mentioned, it's a very unique state and it's surrounded by lakes. It's got this diversity. So is it interesting to work and figure out this tourism in addition to enjoy it for yourselves?
7: I, I think it's wonderful. I mean, neither of us were are Michigan natives, mm-hmm. but we certainly proudly call Michigan our homes. Um, and Sarah can talk for herself, but I know I do. And, and it's a wonderful state to be able to, mm-hmm. to tour around and it's a great industry to be able to work with. And we uh we here at MSU have a wonderful relationship with the tourism industry and uh, professionally that's very rewarding.
8: Yep, yeah, I would I'd say the same thing. I mean, I'm very proud to live in Michigan. I've really enjoyed living here for the last 12 years. Um the tourism industry here is fabulous to work with. It's a hard-working but very mm-hmm. active, friendly industry um and it's fantastic to have been here as the industry recovers and really goes from strength to strength to see pure Michigan take off um, and to be involved in watching that and helping that grow. And
7: and around the country too, Michigan, um, I think a a lot of people in the the tourism industry in other states are, are a bit envious of Michigan. Uh, with some of the things that the industry has been able to do, and and in uh, securing funding for the Pure Michigan campaign, and delivering such a wonderful campaign, too. Mm-hmm. So I know when uh, I travel anyway to other places around the country, you know, we hear some of that. Oh, you're from Michigan. Wow, you guys are doing some interesting things there.
8: Mm-hmm. So a funny story, following on from that, there's an organization called the uh, the Council of State Tourism Directors, mm-hmm. and they give out what are called the Mercury Awards every year. Um, And historically they've given anywhere from five to 10 of these awards each year to things like the best TV advertising, the best radio advertising, the best PR campaigns. Um, And because Travel Michigan and the Pure Michigan campaign have won so many of those awards in the last five or six years, they've actually limited the number (laughs) of awards that any one state can win to two per year. I think it was the year before last that Michigan won five of the ten awards that they gave out. So they they had to limit the number that any state could win so to give all of the other states a chance because michigan was doing so well that makes you a proud michigander i think absolutely yeah sure and uh just a couple more
3: questions one how do you foresee the evolution of tourism because it's a constantly changing process as right now we have that homegrown you know kind of crave and that excitement so in your opinion sarah do you foresee different types of tourism industries popping up in michigan or what are your thoughts on that
8: I think one of the characteristics of tourism worldwide is an increasing trend towards niche kinds of travel. Mm. So, so travel that is focused on a specific activity. Um, so even within culinary tourism, we see now wine-focused tourism, beer-focused mm. tourism, um, people that are interested in local foods or organic foods. And I think that will continue. People's mm-hmm. interests become more and more specialized. Um, and I think because of the diversity of Michigan and its natural and cultural and agricultural resources, we're very well placed to be able to appeal to all of those different kinds of specialist interests. We're also lucky here compared to some of our southern states to have four seasons. You know, Florida doesn't have a nice four season offering, whereas mm-hmm. here we can have the, the changing climate, the changing uh, types of activities that people can engage in. So we've got that nice wide variety sure. of, of seasons. Urban and natural kinds, and urban and rural kinds of settings. Lots of different things to see and do.
3: Excellent. And my last question is, what is your favorite place in Michigan, or one that you hope to travel to as tourism extraordinaires?
7: <laughs> well, my my in-laws live near Sleeping Bear Dunes um, in the northwest part of the state, um, and I've been going there for for a number of years, even when we weren't living here in Michigan. And it's always I've said long before I was working in in the industry in this uh, state that it's one of my favorite places on earth.
8: Mm-hmm. I'm going to take the, the diplomatic British <laughs> re, um, approach to this answer um, and say that I couldn't possibly pick one place <laughs> for fear of offending <laughs> any, any tourism industry employee from any of the other places <laughs> I don't pick. But a couple of places that I've, I've had a chance to go to the last couple of years that were sort of Surprises in, in the best possible way. One was the Keweenaw Peninsula. Mm. Um, I had never really been west of Escanaba, up in the UP before, and for a lot of UPers, that's only halfway. And that's that's <laughs> not even the whole way um, through the UP. So Keweenaw was gorgeous. And a place that really, really surprised me was Marquette. Mm. It was a phenomenal small town, fabulous setting, lots to do indoors and outdoors, great hotels and restaurants. Um, so that for me was... Was sort of a, a great surprise.
3: But <laughs> well, we are glad to have you here, and we're glad that we have two individuals who are doing just that. Thank
9: you. Sitting in six lane backed up traffic, horns a honking. I've about had it. I'm looking for an exit sign. Got to get out of here, get it all off my mind. Then like a memory from your grandpa's attic, a song comes slipping through the radio static, changing my mood. A little George Street in 1982, and it makes me want to take a back road. It makes me want to take the long way
6: home. You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure. Now back to Impact Exposure
3: I am Abby Newton and this is Exposure on Impact 89FM We are featuring the best of the spring semester this evening Now, Michigan State University has the largest comic book collection in the world Comic books and graphic novels are becoming more and more popular As they are being used for both an art and entertainment form Impact's Quinn Hoffman reports
1: The Walking Dead, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, V for Vendetta, Kick-Ass. What do all these movies and TV shows have in common? They all started as graphic novels. That's right, comic books. Centuries old and more commonly known as comics, graphic novels are defined a novel made up of a sequence of drawings in boxes that tell a story. Many people associate comic books with kids, but that's not where we find them today.
11: The caliber of art and writing in these books, a lot of these books has grown to be very powerful.
1: That's Gabe Cooper, the owner of the new comic book store in East Lansing, The Hollow Mountain.
11: With writers like Alan Moore and Brian K. Vaughn and Frank Miller, you know, leading this kind of I guess modern revolution in literature, just because they have illustrations, doesn't make the words within them less powerful or meaningful. If we didn't have this big, you know, pulse in popular culture that's pushed, you know, the word comic book, the word graphic novel into the forefront of en- entertainment, we wouldn't see a lot of these opportunities arising for, you know, uh, self-published comics and independent artists and writers. Uh, it's not just Marvel and DC anymore.
1: And this recent surge of comic book love isn't just for fun. I found that scholars like Professor Megan Inbody are starting to look to them for educational purposes. Would you be surprised at all if a student had uh, come up to you and told you that they had been assigned a comic book or a graphic novel to read for an English class?
12: Mm, would
3: I be surprised? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. There's a lot of talk about, you know, including more forms of visual culture as worthy of literary study. I think more and more English departments are taking the kind of ways that we study old traditional texts and are applying them to newer media like film and, you know, various digital texts. So trying to stay up with the times and stay relevant.
1: She says that the English major is going through a period of transition, and where it's going just may start to include a lot more comics. Ian Baker, an MSU sophomore who studies advertising, was assigned a graphic novel, Persepolis, for his humanities course last semester.
13: I thought it was really cool because, you know, it's not just a, it's not just reading, it's a combination of art as well.
1: After talking with the experts for a couple weeks, I found out that our very own Michigan State has the largest comic book collection in the world that's open to the public. So I decided to meet with the owner, Randy Scott, to tour this prestigious collection.
11: the The new 52 is ending up here.
1: He told me that comics were given a bad reputation through the funny pages in the 1920s, but he believes that, Although there are still some stupid comics coming out, they are gradually being taken more seriously.
11: So a lot of people, especially people older than me, grew up uh, in the time when those things were, comics were being denounced by senators on the air and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long struggle, and now there are a younger generation of professors who don't have that stigma automatically built into them.
1: The 1950s is widely referred to as the golden age concerning comics, and it was, for the kids. But the love for the medium in adult audiences seems to be growing every day. And this rapid growth is causing some people to start to ask, is the age of the graphic novel closer than we think? For Impact News, I'm Quinn Hoffman.
3: This is Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. Still to come on Exposure, we tell a story about Batman visiting Michigan State. Now, the EDOT State food truck at Michigan State has an award-winning cheeseburger on its menu. The signature smoked cheddar cheeseburger was named the best local food recipe by the National Association of College and University Food Services. I gave the burger a try with Chef Kurt Kwiatkowski. MSU's Edet State Food Truck Signature Smoked Cheddar Cheeseburger won the best local food recipe in the nation. This cheeseburger was created with the help of locally produced foods and Chef Kurt Kwiatkowski, who has been the corporate chef at MSU for four years. Now I visited the award-winning chef to find out his secrets and try the famous cheeseburger for myself. The first thing I asked him was how difficult it was to produce a cheeseburger in a truck.
5: It's not that difficult, you know. It took a lot more in the planning and figuring out, you know, okay, we first we want a signature item. And all right, what's that signature item gonna be? All right, we want it to be a burger. All right, if I want it to be a burger, because I love burgers, I want it to be something that's delicious, something that's a little bit unique. And uh, so I think everyone really enjoyed all the practice runs in in figuring out what that burger was going to be, and then trying to figure out what's going to make it special. And we started tying in with all the great partners that we have on campus with the beef from Michigan State, and then the greens from the Student Organic Farm, uh, getting the cheese from the MSU Dairy.
3: The cheese, it was an important decision.
5: We've got seven different cheeses that we can use. Let's take them all. And John from the dairy store was like, all right, you know, here you go, go play. And it kind of honed in on two of them specific because I felt like the smoked cheddar would be just too powerful by itself. And Mm -hmm. so we're cutting it with some sharp cheddar, both both from the MSU Dairy. And uh, it just works out to be a great pairing.
3: It took the creative minds about a month to fine tune the cheeseburger. However, the staff very much enjoyed that fine tuning. The
5: the staff, oh, chef, did we need to do another sample to make sure everything's okay?
3: (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, could you show me how this burger's made? Sure, absolutely. With that, chef and I journeyed to the food truck. The kitchen inside this truck was probably about 10 square feet, tops. Five bodies fluidly moved throughout the truck as burgers, grilled cheese, and lemonades were passed to waiting customers.
5: We're going to walk her through how easy it is to make a burger. And then hopefully you're going to want to taste it afterwards. Okay, good.
3: Fresh greens, ripe red tomatoes, and chopped cheeses line the wall as a sizzling, black grilled toasted bread and beef. And then, chef took
5: over. So we start with our beef, we've got our little food truck seasoning. There's about uh, nine or ten different ingredients, but everything from cracked black pepper to turmeric to granulated garlic to... Uh, dried onions, paprika, so it's, it's a lot of stuff. You know, once you make up the seasoning blend, and then you can get the cheese right at the MSU Dairy store. Um,
3: the pink beef the began browning as I listened the to the sizzle of the, the grill. Next, chef took a handful um, of two cheeses and delicately placed them on the beef. Then, he surprised me by grabbing a water bottle and what looked like an upside-down bowl with a handle on
5: top. And so the way we melt the cheese, it's, it's kind of like an old-school diner thing where you hood it and you uh, put some water on it so the steam melts the cheese really, really good. That, that was part of the design of the burger, too. When I knew that the only piece of equipment we were going to basically have to cook to order was a flat top, the burger was designed with that in mind.
3: In no more than two minutes the hood was removed and the burger was placed on a toasted bun and ready for dressing.
2: Just spring, fresh spring mix, red onions and tomato. So.
3: I washed his dark green lettuce, a few red onions, and a tomato slice added even more color to the bun and the cheese covered beef. Chef so so yeah, said too. the burger was a beauty.
5: You know, it's just something that's super special, you know, because you can still see some of the burger, you see the tomato, you see the greens poking out of that bun. The bun's nice and caramelized, browned on top. And it, it you know, it's not necessarily grease, it's just some of the stuff that comes from that sharp cheddar, middle, a little bit of as that cheddar melts.
3: I was handed a glass of lemonade, complete with a sliced lemon and sliced orange, and took a big bite of the signature smoked cheddar cheeseburger.
8: Most <laughs> nice delicious. I can confidently
3: say that I like the judge's choice of the best local food recipe. My next adventure, the potful dessert at the food truck. For Impact News, I'm Abby Newton. This is Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. About a month ago, we did a show all about gender. One of our reporters, Mary Hathaway, was curious how religion impacted gender roles. Here she is now with that story. The traditional role of a woman in Judaism is not one that can be easily summarized.
14: Jewish women are vast in their beliefs and ways of life, so there are many answers to this one simple inquiry. But the variety of Judaism that is present in the United States today has not always been the case. In fact, it used to be quite uniform. Many years ago, in traditional Jewish family dynamics, men were left to study the Torah and women would do physical work. Even in the Torah itself, there are only three commandments directed towards women, but many more for men. Even at synagogue, women and men would be separated so men would not be distracted from their prayers. And these are just to name a few of the gender-specific rules. Some of these ideas are still practiced, but others have become less strict. Today, one of the more strict Jewish groups is Orthodox Judaism. This organization follows Torah law that, for many outsiders, may seem odd and even unequal to females. But for the women within this religion, this is not how they view their life. Allison Josephs is a modern Orthodox Jewish woman who is also founder and director of the blog Jew in the City.
10: Men and women, according to traditional Jewish thought, are different physically, different emotionally, and different spiritually. I heard a rabbi give a interesting, cool explanation for kind of how men and women differ in terms of their commandments. He said there's basically two different ways that you could exist. You could exist by sort of being at the top and remaining at the top, or you could start off at the bottom and pull your way to the top. Um, And so the example that he gave is that women start off at the top and men are starting off lower, and that's why they have more commandments than women do.
14: While studying women in Judaism, I came across a practice that I had never heard of called a mikvah. In this ritual, men and women do not touch when a wife begins her period and for one week after until the wife has cleansed herself this seemed to be a very hot button issue some people found this to mean that women were unclean when they were on their period which is why a husband and a wife were not able to have physical contact during this time but joseph's again feels that people are looking at this in the wrong light
10: we go to a mix-up because it says in the Torah that a husband and a wife cannot have marital relations if a woman is in a state of nida. And a state of nida is after she's had her period, she has a a sort of lowered spiritual state or she's ritually impure. Now, at first, you hear this and it sounds like, ah, what does that mean? That sounds so misogynistic. If you don't get more explanation, um, then I agree with you. Basically, life is the most holy thing there is within Judaism. We will basically break every mitzvah there is in order to sustain a life. Mm -hmm. So with a woman, every month, she has the potential for new life. Now, it's not to say that women are supposed to get pregnant every month, but the potential is there. And when she gets her period, it is, you know, the physical evidence that the life didn't happen. And so temporarily, she sort of goes down on this lowered state. And so she immerses into a mikva, which is a collection of rainwater. It's done in a very specific way, um, and it's almost like, you know, entering a womb. It's this warm pool of water, and the woman sort of crouches down, almost like in a fetal position, and it's an opportunity really for rebirth. And although that maybe sounds uncomfortable that she goes to this lowered state temporarily in the month, what it allows by going down is the opportunity to go up.
14: But some members of the Jewish community began to distance themselves from the more strict code of Judaism and formed new branches. Kristen Vermeglish is a Jewish studies professor at Michigan State and is also a member of a Reconstructionist synagogue.
15: American Jews, or Reformed Jews, are very conscious of what they look like in front of Gentiles. They're very, very conscious that they look primitive, that they look backward. You know, in some of the ways that you might think about um, sort of more xenophobic discussions about Muslims um, and women wearing headscarves, that is the way that Jews are very worried that they are perceived, particularly because women are held separate in the gallery. So women, you know, women are either up in the balcony um, or women sit behind a the they sit, they they are segregated from the action, Um, and that in an American context, really backward. Um, it looked really problematic. And so American Reformed Jews are pretty committed in the 19th century to creating what are called family pews. So as Reform Judaism spreads, family pews become, you know, sort of central. And that's something that's different about American Judaism compared to European Judaism. There's less of a move for that. But in America, Jews look super backwards, and that's one way in which you know, egalitarianism um, and women are incorporated more fully through Reformed Judaism. Reconstructionists and Reformed Jews have always been more willing to see the Torah as as a living document, as something that is adaptable.
14: But she does understand why some people have chosen the more traditional route.
15: But for Orthodox Jews, the Torah is the Torah. Those words are those words. So, and the practice, the traditional practice also has just been a more important way that they have understood what it means to be a Jew. And so it's much more of a conflict of values and much harder for them to say that, that this is a living document, that it's adaptable, we live in a different world where women are treated differently, and so we can change our practice and still sort of understand this document as being our guide.
14: But the most binding factor for these communities, despite all of their differences, they are still all members of one Jewish society. For Impact News, I'm Mary Hathaway.
2: Now back to Impact Exposure.
3: Welcome back to Impact 89FM. You are listening to Exposure, and I'm your host, Abby Newton. Now, Quincy Sear is a Michigan State University ROTC National Guard cadet. In his future, he hopes to combine a civilian and military career, just like his father did. Quincy's father, Jack, was also in the National Guard. Now, as Quincy grew up in a military household, he realized he had a passion for the service. I explored this unique father-son relationship.
0: As soon as I started learning more about what he did and, you know, where I wanted to see myself, I decided that it was the greatest chance to a pursue a great civilian career and b uh, defend my nation the best way I knew I could.
3: Jack Sear said he never pushed his children to go into a certain profession, but his son Quincy still found himself getting pulled in the same direction as his father.
0: My father is in uh, the National Guard as is. I guess when I started college, I didn't want to go that route directly. But as soon as I started learning more about what he did and you know where I wanted to see myself, I decided that it was the greatest chance to, A, pursue a great civilian career, and B, uh, Defend my nation the best way I knew I could.
3: Quincy is a senior studying physics at Michigan State University. He is also an ROTC National Guard cadet. And his father, Jack, has been in the National Guard for 29 years. He didn't expect Quincy to follow in his footsteps.
12: It was a little bit surprise, but you know we kind of always uh, thought that might be a possibility.
3: Although Quincy began National Guard training in college, he was exposed to its values well before his undergraduate years.
12: When we raised our kids,
0: it was an interesting and uh, very, very structured
12: environment. We always tried to go by the golden rule and treat other people the way you wish to be treated. And you know, through the military values, trying to instill goals in, in the children as well.
0: There was uh, a lot of early mornings and uh, very concise on how you uh, approached details such as t- chores or et cetera, et cetera.
3: Growing up in a military household also taught Quincy the importance of time management.
0: Starting at five forty-five in the morning we'll have a formation and uh, we'll exercise as a group by seven, go home, clean up, get ready for the school day, and I actually work in a a research lab as well. So I'll uh, work from about nine to 11, then go to class from 11 to 5.30, go home, start my homework, and then do it all over again. But
3: Quincy has a strategic way of staying organized and setting goals.
0: Things I like to do every week is list out everything I need to accomplish. In my, uh, my zero-meter, your short-term goals, and then 50 meters at mid-term goals, and then your 100 meter would be your, your long-range goals. It's a s- sort of a military term so that I can uh, execute accordingly.
3: Perhaps it does go back to the military upbringing, or perhaps it comes from his strong desire to be part of the National Guard.
0: My professor of military science actually um, told me being a part of the United States Armed Forces is... The sole responsibility of defending our nation's treasure, you can dedicate your time to defend your nation's treasure, which is, you know, the sons and daughters of America. But also you can balance your your civilian career at the same time.
3: While Jack believes this is true, he says joining the Guard comes with a sacrifice. Jack spent 15 months deployed in Iraq.
12: There is a certain sacrifice that, you know, that's required.
3: 15 months away from his family.
12: I mean, it was a critical time for, for my kids. Uh, I, the time that I had to put for that uh, that mission, that deployment, and for my job, it took me away from my my kids and my wife had to uh, really pick up the ball and go from there. Quincy
0: understands. Sacrifices have to be made.
3: But Jack encourages his son to keep things in perspective as he continues his service with the National
12: Guard. Keep things perspective, keep a go-ahead, and that his family is priority. He's got to keep that in perspective and not to get wrapped up in what he's doing at the time. And that was one mistake that I did, is that I kind of put the family uh, on the back burner. You have to keep things in perspective, uh, even if there's something that's bothering in in your mind.
3: But Quincy is firm in his goals and confident in his beliefs.
0: You know, it may look like a difficult thing or it may look like something that you may not be interested in but I can assure you that with enough willpower, anyone can do it.
3: Quincy will graduate in the spring, but will stay at Michigan State to begin his doctorate degree while continuing his service to the National Guard. Jack, on the other hand, will be retiring from the National Guard on January 1st, 2014.
12: No, it's been a good trip and uh, had a successful career. I'm looking forward to it.
3: What began as a son following in his father's footsteps ends with a father and a son marching forth together. For Impact News... I'm Abby Newton. Whispering,
9: whispering, whispering, whispering as I pass myself down on my knees. Whispering, 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 whispering as I fall through the low trees. I say
4: Impact
2: Exposure
3: Welcome back to Exposure on IMPACT 89FM. I'm Abby Newton. Tonight on Exposure, we feature the best of the school year. Earlier in the year, Batman came to Michigan State University in rare form. I met up with the Caped Crusader to talk about his career, bucket list, and favorite memories. We're
10: happy to have you here today. Thank you for shopping. And we do want to let you
15: know that you can rent all of your textbooks with your base, you money.
3: It and seemed like a normal day at the, the Spartan bookstore, bookstore at Michigan State, State University. But, upon further investigation, I realized we had a superhero among us. Batman.
13: Yes, Alfred? It's the bat phone, sir. Commissioner? You'll never guess who's on the loose. Your old arch enemy, the Riddler. Good heavens. Him again? Can you come to headquarters right away? It'll be a pleasure, Commissioner Gordon.
3: But this Batman left his cape at home. It was actually Adam West, the actor who played the 1966 Batman. He visited Michigan State's campus to share his knowledge, sign autographs, and protect us from the Joker. We sat down with a superhero who actually grew up on a wheat farm in Washington.
13: Look at these hands. Aren't these the hands of a farmer? (laughs) Absolutely. Then then I went to Stanford, did some postgraduate work, became the radio station manager at Stanford, Then I won an audition, I went to NBC, uh, In one year I was fired. Yes, I was drafted, and a whole bunch of stuff happened that day. Yeah, (laughs) but I decided to go into the Army, and uh, went to basic training in California. One thing led to another, and I was made, uh, well, they asked me if I'd start the Army's first TV stations. Closed circuit in California, I did, with some success. And then they sent me to New York and New Jersey to do the same. And from there, I got a job in Honolulu. And then I was doing a play I was discovered by a couple of guys from Hollywood. And one of them, an agent named Lou said, kid, we can sell you in Hollywood. Send me a picture, will you, On a horse. And I did, and, and Six weeks later, I was signed by Warner Brothers.
3: In the signature role, of course. As a young kid, West loved reading the Batman comic books and mimicking Batman and Robin's adventures.
13: Um, You know, it was amazing having um, enjoyed those comic books, Batman (laughs) especially, when I was a kid on the ranch, uh, to suddenly years later wind up being or playing Batman. I mean, that kind of psyched me out a little. But, you know, when you pull on that cowl, it's so simple. Because as an actor, you just kind of sense memory and go back. Your question, you see, how was it when I was playing Batman as a kid? Hey, with my brother. Hey, you be Robin, I'll be Batman. Come on, let's go out and play. Let's go play Batman. It's the same thing when you walk out of your dressing room. You pull on the cowl, you got the cape and all that stuff, and you think to yourself, wow, we're going to go play Batman now.
3: (laughs) Was it difficult to ever shake the cape off?
13: Uh, To take it off?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, to turn back into Adam West and not Batman. Oh,
13: I see. Um, You know, it's always somewhat difficult to leave a role that you've invested uh, a lot of stuff in, into. However, it was such a relief to pull off that hot cowl, get out of those itchy tights. No, it was no trouble,
11: <laughs> believe
13: me. Oh, I couldn't even go to the bathroom for, for days. I'm so sorry. Yes, I couldn't find the zipper. No, I'm teasing. Go on.
3: Now, once people in the East Lansing and Lansing area heard that the Caged Crusader was coming to campus, they flocked to the Spartan bookstore. Teresa Dunn of DeWitt was an excited fan waiting in line. You know,
10: I'm a really big comic fan. I
3: like all that sort of stuff with the campy, you know, bang kapow, you know, exploding sharks. It's all up my alley, so the chance to actually meet Adam West, because he's never in this area ever, so it's a great opportunity, really. What are you going to say to him when you go up there? I have no idea. I'm hoping I just don't, like, completely choke up. I might ask him if he'd ever consider being Alfred in a movie. (laughs) So, for you, does Batman represent something more important, you know, the superhero aspect? What does it mean to you? Truth, justice, and the American (laughs) way. With Teresa's enthusiasm for Adam West came the impersonation. I'm Batman. It's It's terrible, I know. (laughs) Michigan State University sophomore Stuart Tarp also waited in line to meet his childhood idol.
9: I'm here to meet Adam West and he's hopefully going to sign my Batman number one limited edition poster. Adam West was sort of like a childhood idol to me, I really looked up to him and I watched his movie probably like a thousand times so I'm just really excited to meet him and actually get his signature here.
3: But to Stuart? His love and respect for the Batman went beyond the stealth of a Batmobile in a black
9: cape. To me, it represents that you should never compromise in the face of justice. You always got to look forward and remember, Batman is the symbol that we should never compromise. Go for your dreams.
3: Besides playing the Dark Knight, West has appeared in many other films and has done much voiceover work. His current
13: project... Mayor West, what are you doing here? I'm being a rascal and ringing people's doorbells and running away.
9: Then what are you still doing here?
13: It's my first house. I'm not very good at this.
3: Mayor Adam West from the popular television show Family Guy. I
13: think the toughest thing is to play yourself. For example, to play Mayor Wee, Mayor West, in Family Guy. That's really tough because you're not behind... Uh, what they used to call I think in England the green umbrella of a role. You're not hiding in a role You've got to be yourself, but with family guy It's necessary to do a crazy quirky um, strange variation But you better walk that tight wire otherwise you're too goofy. You know what I mean? There's a certain dignity uh, that can be preserved in just about all kinds of comedy, even physical comedy. Mm-hmm. Look at Cary Grant, for example.
3: <laughs> However, West says his favorite role is always his current role. You
13: embrace it, and you think, I'm going to make that my favorite, and I'm going to bring it something fresh. Look out.
3: The last thing I wanted to know from West was what was on his bucket
13: list. Uh, I think maybe to go home and and, and uh, play with the dogs. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> Uh, There are a lot of things I want to do, my God. I want to go to the Caribbean and go diving, and uh, I want to go back to Yellowstone soon, and hope it's still there. Um, I think I want to travel, and I want to read some more good scripts.
3: And with that, we let Adam West retire to his bad cave, as we retired back to our studios. For Impact News, just outside of Gotham City, I'm Abby Newton. And that is all we have for Exposure tonight. But before we end the show, I want to introduce you to our new Exposure Director at Impact eighty nine FM, Stephen Rich. Stephen, welcome to the show.
2: It's good to be here, Abby.
3: How do you feel, Stephen, being uh, the new Exposure Director?
2: I'm very excited. I got a lot of good plans for the summer, so I think we're gonna have a lot of fun.
3: What can the audience look forward to?
2: Um, so far, uh, no idea.
3: <laughs> It's a work in progress.
2: <laughs> it's a work in progress. I don't know. I think we're going to, you know, do a lot of the similar things that you've been working on, uh, featuring some stories around Michigan State, um, as well as, you know, kind of expanding beyond that and in, um, diving into some different topics.
3: Excellent. And now one thing we like to do here, in Impact is learn about each other. And one of the questions we always like to ask is, what is a unique fun fact about yourself, Stephen?
2: Oh, that's a tough one. I never actually have a good answer. Usually, I just stick to the fact that my twin sister goes to U of M.
3: (laughs) Well, it might be a divided household, but we are not a divided exposure, and I congratulate Stephen on his success, and I look forward to hearing him on the radio waves. And that is all we have for tonight on Exposure. Special thanks to producer Gabriela Saldivia, station manager Sam Riddle, and general manager Ed Glazer. Tonight's show and all other Exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. It has been an absolute pleasure hosting Exposure this year and last year. It has been an absolute pleasure hosting Exposure this year and last year. I've learned a lot. I'm very thankful for this opportunity, and I hope you enjoyed the last year and a half of Exposure. Now, for the last time, keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Abby Newton, and this is Impact Exposure, 89FM.
1: Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been
6: listening to
2: Impact Exposure,